Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. They've seen friends or relatives either succumb or get very sick. And so they don't want that to happen. And they'll, they'll listen to anything that, you know, has potential uh, believability. But believability is one thing. The data and the proof is another. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. As you know, I'm deeply interested in science and current affairs. In the era we are living through right now, I feel it's more important than ever to bring you topical conversations based in science, and that's what we are doing today, and will be continuing to do in the coming months. I have been increasingly frustrated by the spread of unsubstantiated information being spread all across the internet about the pandemic. It's important to recognize that when we're dealing with a very new or rapidly changing phenomenon, like we have been with the pandemic, even the, quote, scientific consensus can easily be wrong because there's not been much time for the rigorous replicability studies to be conducted or even sometimes to accurately measure the proper effect sizes. However, I also believe it's important that we don't create a false equivalency between very fringe ideas that are unsupported by the current evidence base and a scientific consensus that is grounded in rigorous methodology. This is why I sought out the counsel of Dr. Eric Topol on today's show. Despite being one of the top 10 most cited researchers in medicine and being extremely well regarded in his field of cardiology, he's also been a bright light on social media, shining a light on the best available evidence in the pandemic. He thoughtfully considered all my questions and was very careful to make clear what the current evidence base says without ruling out alternative possibilities in the future in light of new evidence. In this episode, we cover a number of hot-button issues surrounding the pandemic, including the potential use of ivermectin to end the pandemic, the potential for increased risk of myocarditis among certain populations after vaccination, and we even discuss the role human psychology and human behavior has played in this pandemic. Ultimately, as you'll see, Dr. Topol is optimistic about the future of the pandemic, and outlines things coming down the horizon that should give us hope. But as we discuss, the major problems tend to be human problems. Please leave comments on our YouTube page or on our podcast website. I'd really love to hear your reactions to this episode. So without further ado, I now bring you Dr. Eric Topol. 
Hi, thanks. I know you're a busy guy. Appreciate you coming talk to me today. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to just jump into it? I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. Well, first of all, I want to really thank you for talking to me today. I decided to do a bit of a PSA for my podcast. I saw a lot of information being spread all over, and I've really appreciated your constant commitment in the public to try to show as much data as you possibly can. So I thought if we could kind of walk through some issues, that'd be really helpful. Can we start off by, can you kind of tell our audience a little bit about uh, about you and your main area of specialization? Sure, Scott. Uh, I'm uh, an old dog, <laughs> you know, uh, having been a physician scientist for 30 some years. Uh, I actually still practice as a cardiologist, but I also have a lot of grounding in molecular medicine, particularly genomics and digital. And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I decided to devote some effort to try to help understand it and help share what I hope is good information. So I've been staying on that in addition to all the other things I normally do, which is heading up the Scripps Research uh, Translational Institute uh, here in uh, California. Are you writing all those tweets yourself? Because how do you have so much time? It's it's so helpful to us, but... Everyone comes from me, every single yeah. one. Is, since I've been on now, what, 12 years, there's over 40,000, every single one. And that includes, you know, whether making graphs or doing analysis, reading the articles or preprints. Yeah, that's what I try to do is uh, process the data um, and put it out there. And if everybody did that in terms of sharing what they read, it was interesting uh, or worthy, then we all would get smarter faster. Do you feel like you're constantly revising your hypotheses in light of new evidence? Like, were there any things a couple of years ago where you maybe shared some data on Twitter and had some hypotheses and now you're like, you know what, I was wrong or that the data suggests that we need to think about things differently? Oh, sure. I mean, I think we've learned a lot along the way. I mean, one a good example was the alpha variant where it looked pretty ferocious in the UK when we first saw it. The concern was it was going to wreak havoc here in the U.S. But fortunately, when it arrived, we were getting going with vaccination at full tilt. And in fact, those are the days where we got up to, you know, three, four, four and a half million vaccinations a day. So we thwarted it largely. Uh, we had a very small uh, bump, uh, which was great. But if you were to look at, as I did, uh, at the predictions coming from Europe, it looked like it could be a real concern. So. You know, there's a lot of moving parts in the pandemic, no less the virus and our response and human behavior and immune escape of new variants like Omicron. So you can't possibly anticipate all. You turned out that, you know, Delta and Omicron really did play out like Alpha looked like it was going to. So, you know, it was kind of a, a forewarning about where we might be headed, but it was a subsequent variant that actually did what was uh, the concern for Alpha. Okay, cool. Well, I definitely want to get into Omicron and uh, and other juicy topics, but I just want to get something out of the way. Now, you have no connection or conflicts with Big Pharma in any way, right? Not at all. In fact, if anything, I've yeah. challenged them uh, throughout my career, but I have no relationships with any of the vaccine manufacturers or any of the, you know, obvious uh, pharma, biopharma benefactors of this pandemic. Yep. Okay, can you explain to our listeners what an emergency use authorization even means? Because you have a lot of people that are skeptical of that. And can you kind of set the record straight on that a little bit or at least clarify? 
Well, I mean, we only had uh, the Pfizer vaccine get it a full authorization and Moderna, um, you know, just in recent days. So the problem with the emergency use authorization originally uh, back in November 2020, when both of those vaccines and then subsequently others got this EUA designation, is that it is, as it, as it implies, it's not a full authorization. It's based on the sense that it's an emergency and the criteria for such an EUA is may be effective. Three words, may be effective. So th- it turns out that it's a it's a way to basically get something out there, but you do wanna eventually get all the data, which is 100,000 plus pages of data to the FDA for a full review. It's called a biologic licensing application, BLA. That was done for Pfizer, now done for Moderna, uh, likely will be done for other vaccines. But also that final approval isn't for like all ages, for example. I mean, their separate amendments have to go in. So currently there's a lot of controversy, which is quite understandable regarding this age, less than age five for the Pfizer vaccine. But, you know, the original was age 18 plus that got an EUA that now has a final approval. But, you know, we've already seen how EUAs can go off the track. So hydroxychloroquine had to be withdrawn. Convalescent plasma had to be withdrawn. So it's not just about vaccines. I mean, there's been drugs, there's been lots of rapid tests and PCR tests that had to be withdrawn. So EUAs um, are in a kind of tentative status. So I think it'd be really helpful for you to explain to our listeners a little bit why as you say, this will go down in history as one of science and medical research's greatest achievements, perhaps the most impressive. I don't know if people really fully have the scope of why this is such an amazing scientific achievement, having vaccines at the rapid speed it has. Right, Scott. Well, here, I guess, reference is that it's taken about 10 years on average from identification of a pathogen to a successful vaccine. But there are many pathogens where we've never had a successful vaccine, like HIV and malaria and a long list, okay? So the fact that we not only shortened the 10 years to less than one year from the identification of Mm. SARS-CoV-2, and it was successful with a 95% reduction of symptomatic infections is unbelievable (laughs) and replicated to two different vaccines. So it wasn't just the hyper compression of time or acceleration. It was also the, the super efficacy, uh, at least to start with. Of course, that changed over time and with variants. Um, so that is a momentous finding. Uh, it, it, it obviously builds on about three decades of mRNA uh, efforts that w- required amazing amount of perseverance. So it wasn't just a flash in the pan sort of thing. And, you know, obviously it was facilitated by the sequencing of the virus that helped to build a template and all sorts of major science steps that, and large clinical trials that, that made this possible. So it's the culmination of a, a huge amount of basic science, uh, clinical science and trials, and I think it's extraordinary. And not only that, but these same vaccines that were against the original ancestral strain have held up now two years plus into the pandemic with a third dose given to a very different strain, Omicron. 
everyone, I'm excited to announce that the eight-week online Transcend course is back. Become certified in learning the latest science of human potential and learn how to live a more fulfilling, meaningful, creative, and self-actualized life. The course starts March 13th of this year and goes until May 1st. The course includes more than 10 hours of recorded lectures, four live group Q&A sessions with me, four small group sessions with our world-class faculty, a plethora of resources and articles to support your learning, and an exclusive workbook of growth challenges that we think will help you overcome your deepest fears and grow as a whole person. There are even some personalized self-actualization coaching spots with me available as an add-on. Save your spot today by going to transcendcourse.com. That's transcendcourse.com. We have so much fun in this course, and I look forward to welcoming you to be a part of the Transcender community. Okay, now back to the show. Yeah, you say, what if there was a way to prevent 99% of COVID deaths and 96% hospitalizations? Safety was validated, and billions of people, it was free, and there was an unlimited supply. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So fair enough. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. No, it's, but, if, we, if we all used them, if we all took the vaccines and boosters, um, you know, th- this pandemic would be uh, not very concerning at all. But obviously today we will hit 900,000 confirmed deaths with a lot more of actual mm-hmm. excess mortality and, uh, you know, immense amount of morbidity, uh, which was uh, much of it unnecessary, especially after the vaccines rolled out. Do you see any legitimate concerns coming from some of the anti-vaxxers? Like, do you ever hear anything where you're like, you know what, that's fair enough. We don't have the full data yet. And so maybe we should keep an open mind about X, Y, Z. Or anything in particular you could think of off the top of your head? Well, I I don't have a – well, let's put it this way. After you've given over 10 billion doses, for there to be Mm -hmm. claims about safety concerns – or a lack of efficacy, it doesn't work. I mean, these are all completely bogus, all right? I do share, uh, the anti-vaxxers typically are very strong proponents of infection-acquired immunity, the buzz term, natural mm-hmm. immunity. And I actually see that that provides a very important type of immunity, which is complementary to vaccines. And I've argued strongly with the CDC that people who have had a confirmed infection should be recognized as having some immunity, at least equivalent to one dose of vaccine. And that would have reduced the polarization between these groups because you can understand if you've gone through COVID, uh, you don't feel that you should be mandated to be getting two shots of a vaccine, right? So this is why I think this lack of recognition of a large body of data about prior COVID natural immunity, it's, it's, to me, it's sickening because basically it, it not only is it ignoring the science, but it's also making the divide even more intense than it needs to be. Uh, that's really unfortunate. Uh, I mean, there's, there's uh, concerns about various side effects that may come, obviously, uh, the myocarditis uh, controversy. And yeah. I've, been, I've been looking into that and if I just do my usual Google Scholar search, I don't find many papers that argue that a risk is greater with the vaccine than if you get COVID itself. Um, there's some, you know, if you hone in or you double click on very specific age groups among males and maybe the second shot 
um, is a higher risk than with the booster. Can you kind of set the record straight? And where's the data on that right now? Because to me, even to me, I mean, as a scientist reading all these kinds of papers and reading the debates, it's still a bit confusing. Yeah, you know, it's been used, unfortunately, as a against the safety of vaccines when I don't think that's true. It's unfortunate that um, in the teen group, not so much in the group under age 12, but in the teen group of 12 to 17, and in young adults, mostly males across these ages, that is between 18 and 30-odd, there is uh, an increased risk of vaccine-induced myocarditis with mRNA vaccines. It's more with Moderna than Pfizer because the Moderna dose is much higher than that of Pfizer. It's almost a doubling there. It's extremely rare, though, uh, and most of the cases are self-limited. However, the point that you're getting at, Scott, is that the COVID-induced myocarditis is much higher incidence. It's still low, but it's much higher incidence than the vaccines. So there is a risk there. It's mainly in the second dose. It's mainly in males. It's barely shown up in the younger than age 12. That is, in the 5 to 12, there's been... 12 documented cases, all of them were self-limited. They, they, did, they recovered. And that's among 9 million doses administered to age 5 to 12. Now, that's Pfizer. There hasn't been a Moderna uh, in the 5 to 12 age group. So I understand there's a, there's a, a I mean, I'm a cardiologist. I'm, I have deep respect for myocarditis, I can tell you. So the COVID myocarditis is more common from the infection. It's also more severe and worrisome. Um, we don't understand the mechanism of the myocarditis from the vaccines, from mRNA vaccines. They don't occur with other vaccines. It's troubling when you don't understand how it occurs, okay? I don't like that. I like to know why it occurs, right? But I, I, I would not at all hold back uh, on using uh, the vaccines in the teens uh, because of this low-risk, very, very low-risk side effect. Um, so that's kind of where I'd sum up the data at this point. Thank you. I appreciate you being so reasonable. Dr. Tobel, it seems to me, and I just wanted to get your take on it, that there are some topics that are taboo to even discuss. It seems taboo to discuss the risks of over-vaccinating young people. It seems like just a taboo topic in general, just even talking about it. Um, I did find a very interesting perspective from Dr. Paul Alfit, who said that he did not personally feel young people benefited from boosters, and that he advised his own son against getting a booster. And um, I respect Dr. Alfit's uh, credentials and and his his background. I just wanted to just have a reasonable conversation with you. Your thoughts about that? Do you think it's it's reasonable to even discuss and um, look at different sources of data to allow people to make the decision whether or not they want to uh, vaccinate, especially within certain age groups? Well, I mean, I know Paul Offit very well. We're friends. I've interviewed him mm-hmm. multiple times. I've been very surprised about his views about adults getting boosters. Because I think the data there is absolutely unequivocal for reduction of hospitalizations. The teens and younger children, I mean, there's obviously some divide there. It's harder to argue with the children because of their risk being low. However, remember, it's not just vaccinating for prevention of death or hospitalization, which the rates are low. It's also vaccinating because we know vaccines are reducing long COVID, which does occur in children. We also know that mm. that with children, we want to avoid secondary attacks to their parents and their network and their grandparents. 
And also we want to keep schools open. Obviously we missed out on that almost the first year of the pandemic. We sure don't want to keep seeing that happen. So there are good reasons because of the safety to use vaccines in children and teens, in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, many good reasons. Uh, and there are the rare, very, very sick kids across these different age groups. Mm -hmm. Paul Offit has been against boosters from the get-go. All uh, boosters mm -hmm. of all, uh, against all ages. And I have to say that uh, among the various vaccinologists and experts, he and a few others stand alone. They, they are not, their views are not shared by the majority of, of, of experts in the field. I mean, you're obviously open to even discussing it and, and open to new data that may come out. Do you think it's possible that data could come out someday that shows that it's probably not necessary to boost, uh, use the booster for certain age groups? Oh, I, 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 we were just talking about vaccination in young age groups. As far as the booster right now, booster, I think yeah. the, da the data that we have is, is you know, age 18 plus. I'm not talking about boosters right. of children. No, no. Or teens. You could argue the teen story with boosters. If you want to maintain that high level of efficacy because of mm -hmm. the waning issue, yes. But I'm not arguing here that boosters need to be given to less than age uh, 16 because we don't have data in that regard. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I was really, I was worrying about that. Ivermectin. Okay, Ivermectin. So uh, what confuses me about it, because I'm trying to I'm trying to read all the studies and, and get to the truth, I do see that this meta-analysis that, that came out that people like Brett Weinstein were talking about and, and using that as data, I see a lot of problems, that meta-analysis, small sample sizes, et cetera. What I'm trying to understand is when I read um, Andrew Bryant et al.'s response to that, they said that even if they exclude this particular study by al Ghazer, there's still a clear result showing that 49% mortality in favor of ivermectin and 87% reduction in COVID-19 infection in favor of ivermectin. That Can you kind of set the record straight from that or kind of clarify what the, the best available data you've seen says? Because even from a scientific paper approach, it's a little bit confusing to get to the truth. Yeah, I mean, I reviewed all the data at the time with um, Sam Harris on his podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I love that episode, by the way. Yeah. yeah, thanks. And, you know, I think the important thing here is, as I pointed out then, and I still stay with it now, is there may be a signal of ivermectin having some efficacy. However, we can't be sure because there hasn't been any good trial large enough with the same dose and also you want to ideally see it replicated to prove it. So that's why uh, what we have is we've had two studies that had to be retracted because of fraud, and those were the largest studies. And we're left with this hodgepodge of many different small trials. Another one was just came out in preprint this week uh, where it's not significant on its own and just you know lumping them together. You stitch something with different doses and different indications, and it's basically you can't conclude anything from that, right? So I would love to see, you know, large trials with ivermectin versus placebo with a fixed dose or testing multiple doses for the different indications, that is, as a treatment or as a prevention. But for people to go ahead and assert that it would cure the pandemic, it would end the pandemic, and that 99% of cases would be prevented by ivermectin and do emergency podcasts on Joe Rogan, for example, that's where you cross the line. So, you know, I think until there's proof, like there's proof for Paxlovid, right, uh, and other treatments that are done properly, 
then you can't be, you know, hyperbolic and make these ridiculous claims. And so that's the unfortunate part. I have never used the word horse pills or any of this demeaning stuff because I think there's mm. potential for ivermectin. It's not over yet, but just get the darn data before you broadcast about how it will cure and end the pandemic. Yeah, you're seeing that all over the place. You're seeing people running with um, with the slightest of, of data that, that fits what, what some people seems like what they want to be true. What's your take? Yeah, there's various reasons for this ivermectin that we saw with hydroxychloroquine too, right? And mm, yeah, we did. You know, everybody, everybody wants uh, kind of a, uh, a cure and a miracle and something that's very easily attainable, that's uh, inexpensive and, you know, mass produced. Mm. Sure, we all want that. And it's in some ways it's predatory because yeah. if you say it does that and you don't have the data and you know it's widely available, whether it's through veterinarians or whatever the way you get it, it, it creates trouble because you give people false hopes. And it, it's really unfortunate. And we don't want that to happen because a pandemic, obviously, a lot of people um, are subject to uh, they're worried and they, they've seen friends or relatives either succumb or get very sick. And so they don't want that to happen. And they'll, they'll listen to anything that you know, has potential uh, believability, but believability is one thing. The data and the proof is another. You know, you raised some really good points here. I mean, we are living through such a time of uncertainty, and it's almost like the the scientific method itself is coming under attack because people really just don't have patience for it. <laughs> I mean, the science. You know, as a graduate student, you spend five years sometimes um, trying to to figure out the most minute of something, and you know, and you, you, you're trained as a scholar to have that sort of patience. But, you know, now, you know, we're, we're living through times where such personal decisions we have to make and we want to know, what do we do? What do we do? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. To, it's a difficult for scientists to watch the scientific method and the institute, scientific institutions be under such strong attack. And I'm sure it's very, very hard for you to see it too. Absolutely. So, okay, was the pandemic planned? Dr. Peter McCulloch says early treatments were suppressed, quote, in order to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death. What's the latest data uh, evidence you've seen on that for or against that? Well, I couldn't disagree more fervently from that statement. As far as the plan, I mean, it's pretty obvious that uh, we need to achieve containment. We've never gotten there. uh, And that uh, hopefully we're starting to decline with the current surge that's kind of a combined second delta and omicron surge and uh you know we still have over 120,000 people in in the hospital with covid and we have currently 2600 plus deaths a day and we're over 80 percent of the deaths that we had before vaccination in january of 2021 Mm -hmm. so our country isn't doing well and uh in order for us to get um our house in order, we need to get uh, all, you know, all things going. That is, we need to have rapid tests widely available. We need to use, when we have indoor gatherings, uh, use the appropriate mass. A new CDC, a morbidity and mortality report was out today about the efficacy of high-grade masks like uh, KN95s and N95s with some 80% reduction of infections. So for indoor gatherings with air filtration, uh, ventilation, those sorts of things, uh, until we get this containment level, which 
Hopefully, we also will see high uh, quantities of Paxlovid available so that people who do get COVID will be able to uh, get pills, a five-day pack that they can basically suppress the chance of progression and get 90% reduction of their viral load very quickly through pills that are much easier to take than infusions. And, you know, eventually we're going to be in really good shape, but we are going to have COVID around for years to come, but it's really been our anemic okay. response. We, we've done very poor with vaccinations in this country. There's been a, a, a fierce anti-vaccine, anti-science, anti-mask, uh, and growing momentum movement uh, against the progress that we could have made. And that's why we're so far behind many other countries around the world that have basically gotten Omicron under wraps and they're going to be in much better shape. We're at 63% vaccination. There are countries that are 85, 90% of their population vaccinated. We're at 25% boosters. There are countries that are 65% plus boosted. And we've left a lot of our elderly unprotected. So our future depends on our ability to execute. And, uh, you know, we, we are missing on many different fronts. And we also have uh, lack of data capture and processing by our CDC, poor communication. You know, that's where I would describe that improvement has to be made so that we can get as quickly as possible to get the containment that all of us want. Yeah, for sure. It just seems like so much of it is is actually psychological. I mean, I wonder if are there more are there more conspiracy theories or less trust of the scientific findings in America than there are in the countries that have higher rates of vaccination? How much of it is psychological? How much can I as a psychologist help out here? Well, I wrote an editorial in Science magazine a couple of weeks ago about that we need unity in message that we've had infighting among our public health agencies. That's the last thing you want in a pandemic, right? Yeah. So on the yeah. one hand, you don't want conspiracy, conspiracy theories. On the other hand, you don't want the, the public health agencies with different takes on everything. And the other thing we need is we are missing leadership at the, at the HHS, which oversees FDA, NIH, and CDC. And that secretary, uh, Javier Becerra, needs to show up and show leadership, make the data uh, become available widely, quickly, and also get rid of the infight. So these are, you know, these are, it's not, I don't know if you want to call it psychology, but these are, ab, uh, you know, the absence of leadership. Human. Yes. Well, human issues. Human <laughs> issues, exactly. Human <laughs> issues and human behavior have been holding us back. And I hope eventually we can, you know, get on a much better track. Yeah, we're, it sounds like we're on our own worst enemy in a lot of ways. Um, look, I appreciate your time today. I want to put this out and kind of set the record straight and some more of the data is on that. Do you have any sort of last words of, dare I say, hope for this pandemic? Well, I'm, I'm very optimistic, and I do think we are going to be in, in good shape and hopefully a stable position eventually. I hope that over the course of the weeks and months ahead, you know, things are going to look much better than they have in, in recent times. I do think, and I've written about and worked on with others, the idea, the concept of pushing towards a pan-coronavirus vaccine, which would protect us from all variants in the future. Uh, that, I think, is something that's really worthy, and uh, hopefully that's going to get traction. Uh, but otherwise, you know, we need to do much better preparation so that when someday there's another pandemic, we don't have such uh, poor response, that we're ahead of it. 
And uh, in fact, we need to invest in that preparation. There's a really good review paper today in Science Advances that takes us through how the cost of doing that is around 120th of the cost of a pandemic. And so we need to put in resources so that we're prepared for the long haul because we haven't yet uh, in, in recent decades gotten behind the public health importance in this country to uh, prevent what's happened uh, with COVID-19. Yeah. And there's a lot of people uh, who just have a lot of misconceptions about what exactly this uh, vaccine, mRNA vaccine actually does. Some people think it's gene therapy. You know, can you, can you, can we make it very clear it does not actually change the genetic structure? You know, that's not how this vaccine works. Yeah. I mean, this is preposterous. This has been put out by, uh, you know, Robert Malone and others. It's completely mm. uh, fraudulent. Uh, mm. th- there is no change of the genetic uh, of a human being from an mRNA uh, uh, nanoparticle package that goes in as a vaccine. So this is, this is the kind of stuff that's really held, held us back and uh, we can't, can't tolerate. Well, I really appreciate your time today and keep, keep it up. <laughs> keep up the good public science communication and the research. Thank okay, you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.